In the late 1980s, a woman named Gail Benefield worked in a small town in Montana, and her job was simple, reading the meters for the utility company throughout the town. And yet as she went from home to home, as she spoke with people, as she met people, she noticed something odd, that in this little town, there were so many people who were on oxygen. And it wasn't people who were in their 80s or 90s. By and large, it was people in their 40s or 50s or even their 30s. And she began to wonder what was happening. And puzzled, she began to investigate. And she found in her like, kind of investigation that there was a toxic form of asbestos by the name vermiculite that had been used to insulate many of these Montana homes against the harsh winters. And it had been used prolifically throughout as a soil conditioner in the football fields, in the parks where people were going and breathing and, and spending their leisure time. And so she thought, I can, I can save these people. I can blow the top off this. And she began to tell anyone and everyone in the town who would listen, there is poison in your homes. There's poison in the parks. There's poison in the dirt. And yet, no one would listen. In 2014, NPR reported on this, saying, in fact, she became so annoying and kept insisting on telling this story to her neighbors, to her friends, to other people in the community, that eventually a bunch of them got together and made a bumper sticker which said, yes, I'm from Libby, Montana, and no, I don't have asbestosis. And yet, despite becoming an object of ridicule and, and an object of scorn, she continued to, to work at trying to bring people into understanding what's going on to open their minds. And not long after that, a scientific researcher confirmed her suspicions. And then everyone went along with it. No, no, they didn't. They still said, ah, we don't believe in your science. I think the jury's still out on that. Uh, if it were really dangerous, our doctors would have warned us about it. At the end of the day, in total, over 400 people died from this substance. Over 1,200 other people were affected, and the EPA eventually spent $120 million on the cleanup, and a special asbestos clinic was set up in order to treat the many people who suffered from ongoing effects. And when she was interviewed about this for that story in 2014, she said, there's a lot of willful blindness around these days. There are issues at work that people are afraid to raise. 85% of people, they know there's a problem, but they won't say anything. And in this case, they knew there was a problem, and it was a deadly problem, and yet people, they were in denial. This woman, however, would not stop speaking the truth because she knew the stakes were just that high. And we see a similar thing here in Acts 20. As Paul reflects on his ministry in the past and looks at the ministry in the future, he talks about how very arduously and ardently he spoke the gospel. He proclaimed the truth, even the difficult parts even when people turned against him, even when people persecuted him and mocked him because of how high the stakes were. We saw last week, and if you still have a map, you might pull that out. You saw last week that Paul decided to sail right past Ephesus on his way back to Jerusalem because he wants to get there for the feast. And he stops in Miletus. And he thinks, I've said goodbye to almost everyone, but not the church in Ephesus. So he sends for them. And according to Eusebius, he sent a letter that simply said, meet us in Miletus. No, he didn't. I made that up. But, you know, it was probably in Greek. 
he says, come down, I need some time with your church leadership. Not the whole church, but the elders. And perhaps this morning, the message is for the whole church, but especially for the elders. As they're in Miletus waiting, undoubtedly Paul is thinking about what he will say. What are the words that this church he spent three years with, that he poured himself into, what are the final words of instruction and exhortation and warning that he will offer? Now, if you look in your Bible, the map may show Miletus as being landlocked because the site is today because of silt from rivers. But back then it was a port city and they were able to come right in on a boat, get off the boat, and they just spent a brief time with Paul. He said what he needed to say. They wept and off he went. Now, of all the speeches and sermons and exhortations in the entire book of Acts, this is the only one delivered to Christians. All the others are to unbelievers, or at best to a mixed audience that's mostly unbelievers, with an emphasis on bringing the unbelievers to faith and showing them the truth of the gospel. And so in a sense, I think here we have a glimpse behind the curtain of how Paul dealt with the leadership in church. We have a model for gospel ministry. What must a church look like? What must be the emphases that push a church forward? Now, nowhere in the New Testament are we given a real detailed, this is exactly how much things must work, this is the programs you should have, these are the... But we are shown broadly what should be our priority, what should be our main task, what we should pour our lives into as the church. Again, this is broken into three sections. First, Paul sums up his past ministry. Second, he points to his future plans and lays those out. And thirdly, he gives a charge to the elders from Ephesus. And I think all of them, working together, give us a clearer picture and serve as kind of a challenge to the church today of how we should go about doing gospel ministry. As he sums up his past here, in Acts 20, 19, he says, You know how I lived among you the whole time from the day I first set foot in Asia? Serving the Lord. You saw me? You saw me serving the Lord. Now, that's a pretty vanilla phrase. I was serving the Lord. You know you've been serving the Lord. We, we go to a restaurant and someone comes and serves us. Here's your server. They're not a waitress or a waiter anymore. They're a server. People think of serving in terms of maybe I do a few hours of of volunteer work a week, but that's not the, the thrust of what Paul is saying here. In that translation, you miss a little something. The word that he uses comes from the Greek word doulos, which is generally translated slave like a bond slave, someone who owes so much money that they are, they are bound to serve someone. Paul is not putting in some uh, volunteer service at his discretion. No, he's saying, I have served the Lord as one who does not belong to himself, but has been bought by a price, the price of Jesus' blood. He performed the duties of a slave, in a sense, although he is perfectly free, free in Christ. I served, he says, I served with great humility. That might seem kind of counterintuitive. When someone tells you how humble they've been, it almost sounds like they're bragging about it. But the reason Paul brings this up is because of the the vast chasm between the way Christians were called to live and the way that the pagan world lived. You see, we have humble brags today because humility is widely accepted as the way you should be. You should be humble. You shouldn't think too highly of yourself. You shouldn't brag. Nobody likes that. But that is not the case in the Greco-Roman culture that these Ephesian people had been raised. They they didn't feel sheepish about tooting their own horn. 
No, humility was not valued. In fact, it was seen as a a flaw, a fault, and not a virtue. It was was something that, that losers were. You're humble because there's not really much to brag about. In fact, even in the Judaism of Jesus' day, this had kind of crept in, where those who were greatest were the ones who were most famous, who had the the most flowing robes, who had the best seats when they went to banquets and parties. And Jesus blew everyone's mind by saying, no, forget that noise. Be last. Take the worst seat. The last is first in my kingdom. So he comes in with this very countercultural notion of humility, and Paul is emphasizing that, not bragging, but reminding them, this is how we do ministry. We serve. We serve as one who has been bought with a price, and we serve with humility. And then also he says, with tears. In fact, he says that twice in this passage. He served them with tears for years. He, he does, this doesn't indicate that he, he was a very overly emotional guy, although I guess he might have been. It doesn't indicate that Paul had a martyr complex where he went where there was persecution and then he cried about it and then he told you about it. People who have a martyr uh, complex rarely actually become martyrs. And Paul did. He he followed through on his martyrdom. Now, why did he cry? Not because of his own suffering. In fact, he counted that pure joy. When we see him throughout his epistles mention tears and anguish and these things, it's because of two things. First of all, it's because of the trials of fellow believers. He empathizes so much with them that he feels their pain, and that moves him to tears. And then because of the hopelessness of those who are without Christ in this world. He thinks about the fact that there are people who don't know Jesus and how dark and bleak and hopeless this place is without Jesus, and he just weeps. And as we do ministry in a world where almost everyone is without Jesus, even those who at some point we would have said, well, I mean, 70% of Americans go to church, go out and begin asking people, do you know Jesus? And what does that mean? And you will quickly find that our world is very, very quickly sliding away from any sense of being a Christian culture. It probably happened long ago, and there was just the veneer of it. Now the veneer is going away, and perhaps that's good. We see the darkness and how much the light is needed. Are you moved to anguish, to tears, when you think about the people around you who are living a Christless life and headed to a Christless eternity? And in response to that, that anguish, Paul does one thing more than anything else, and that is he preaches. He teaches. He proclaims the gospel. He he tells people the good news. In fact, he says he has declared the gospel to both Jews and Gentiles. He does it universally. Everyone he will tell the gospel to. Everyone needs to hear it. Even though both Jews and Gentiles have rejected him, although some have accepted. Jews and Gentiles have worked against him, even plotted against him. And in Ephesus is no exception, right? Remember, he was in the synagogue for a time teaching the Jews. Then he was in the hall of Tyrannus teaching probably both Jews and Gentiles. And yet he was kicked out of the synagogue. There's talk here about a plot against him that isn't really sussed out. Something else happened in Ephesus that we're not completely sure of. And then the Gentiles really came after him. Remember, the silversmiths, they started a riot. And they tried to get Paul kicked out of the city at, at least, if not thrown in prison and perhaps put to death. He says, I preach to Jews and Gentiles because they all need, in fact, the, the fact that they resist me so much is evidence that they need Jesus. 
He preached publicly, he says, and house to house. And I don't believe that house to house here indicates going door to door, kind of cold calling with the gospel. I don't have any problem with people who do that. I don't know how effective it is in, in our day and age, but those who do it, good for them. I believe what we're seeing here is going house to house to the house churches where people were meeting together to worship. And he is teaching and he's equipping and he is proclaiming the gospel to those who might be seekers or those who are sitting with the hearers in the back. Paul spoke about the gospel. He talked about Jesus anywhere he could. If, if they had had screen printing back then like they do today, he, like, like Lisa, would have an Ask Me About Jesus t-shirt that he wore around. Paul would speak publicly before large gatherings in small rooms and services with just a few present. He spoke to kings and governors and the most powerful people alive, and he would speak one-on-one -on -one with ordinary folks. And now he plans to bring that gospel further yet. He's going to bring it to Jerusalem and then on to Rome. And we see that as he shifts from summing up his past ministry to describing what his plans are for future ministry. And we see that in verses 22 to 24. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry, ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. As he describes his future plans, he sees himself as being constrained by the Spirit, or literally the word here means tied up, bound by the Spirit. There's such an irony here that this Paul, who had been on his way to Damascus, to bind Christians and drag them off to prison is now bound by the Spirit of Christ to go where he knows he will suffer for the name and to proclaim a message that sets people free. It's a beautiful thing, and Paul sees the beauty in it, although he also sees the trials that lay ahead of him. But he feels the urgent compulsion from the Spirit. When was the last time you felt the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who indwells you if you've put your faith in Jesus, compelling you, giving you what we used to call unction in the church, where you had to do something in obedience to God's will. You'd read the scriptures and in the words of the scripture and through your prayers and, and just as you walked with him and were sanctified by him, you had no choice. But even though you say, I don't even really, in the flesh, I don't want to go there, but I got to go there. Well, that's what's happening here with Paul. Despite being warned by his friends not to go and, and knowing that affliction and imprisonment await him eventually, and he assumes they're in Jerusalem, he says, I must finish my course. Paul often describes the Christian life as a race, a marathon, not a sprint, but it, it's something that must be finished. If you start strong, that's great, but if you don't finish, what difference does it make? You ever hear of somebody who runs a really good 95-yard dash? I, I sometimes fall into that category. I'll get a good start, and then I'll kind of peter out on something. Well, Paul knows his race is nearing the end, and he is not letting up. He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to Rome. That's his intent. And whatever he endures, and he's quite sure it involves affliction and prison, he will not turn aside from testifying to the gospel of the grace of God. And I think this brings us to the meat of the passage. What does that mean? The gospel of the grace of God. What is Paul testifying to? What was the core of his ministry that he's now laying out before the elders of the church of Ephesus that we're now looking at as a church here in Lansing 
centuries and centuries later that is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Well, we see that Paul, as he goes to Jews and Gentiles, as he goes to kings and ordinary people and in all different settings, he changes a bit the way he presents the gospel. But the base message does not change. In fact, here he describes it in this passage simply. Turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. That's the gospel. Turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repent and believe. It's very simple. Turn away from your sin. Turn to the cross. He will accept you. He will take your sin from you and give his righteousness to you and make you a new creation. That's the gospel. And yet, everywhere we see the church, we see people presenting something else as the gospel. There's always false gospels floating around. This week, uh, I don't know if you're on Twitter, but there was an awful lot of uh, talk about a a seminary where they had had a a class where people were confessing to plants. They're confessing their sin to plants. This was not on the Babylon Bee. This was real. And and those who had held the the biblical doctrine said, what are you doing? This is nonsense. And the answer came back, well, I mean, we confess our sins to people. Why not to plants? And, And yet there's not a word about the blood of Jesus. Plants didn't shed their chlorophyll on a cross for you. I got in a great argument with someone not long ago, or a spirited debate, or however you want to frame it about actually an aspect of of our denomination that I thought had dropped the ball on proclaiming the gospel like it used to. Because I I had gone through uh, actually several years of their publications and never found one reference to people getting saved or hearing the gospel or the cross or the blood of Jesus or repenting and believing. And this other individual said, well, but, you know, the, the, the gospel, what is the gospel? It's, it's a message of the kingdom of God, so it's mostly about uh, fairness and, and treating people well and justice. And yes, it is right. The church should always be on the side of justice. Here we're told we must be with the weak, minister to the weak, care for the weak. The kingdom of God will be a place where, where no one is cast out. All who belong to Jesus are welcome at the table, and the last will be first. But our job, our commission as the church, is to first and foremost, our sole commission is to proclaim the gospel, which there's a lot of words you can use and a lot of long phrases and flowery language to describe and kind of dilute down what the gospel is. But with just a few words, Paul here overturns them. He said, the gospel is turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And Jesus also overturns them. Yes, the gospel involves a message of the kingdom, but Jesus' first words in his public ministry in Mark chapter 1, the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the gospel. This isn't a new message. From the very beginning of the Christian movement all the way through the scriptures and into the early church, this is the message. And today it continues to be that powerful And worldly wise and very smart people with a lot of alphabet soup after their names have tried to kind of dilute down and dull down what the gospel is so that it is very acceptable to the world. And yet, the gospel continues to be sharper than any two-edged sword. It will not be diluted. In Luke 24, Jesus gives the Great Commission saying, Proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in my name. I'm sensing a theme coming up. That the gospel is repent and believe. 
This is a great malpractice when it happens in the church. In 2001, there was a Kansas City pharmacist who was charged with diluting cancer drugs. Drugs Gemzar and Taxol. He diluted them down so he could make a few extra bucks. And he did it over the course of four months. And when he was arrested, he admitted that between November and March, he'd been doing this, he'd made a certain amount more money, and he didn't realize that those drugs became completely ineffective when he had diluted them. For the sake of a few extra dollars, this guy who had life-saving power in his hands held it back out of self-interest. This is something that Paul did not do. The late J.M. Boyce said, Some preaching is so general and some references to sin are so indirect that hardly anyone can be offended. And if they cannot be offended, then they can hardly turn from sin since they have not even realized that they are guilty of it. Not the case with Paul. He knew he was guilty of sin. He said, I'm the chief of sinners. And he let everyone know they needed to repent. And twice in this passage, in verse 20 and verse 27, he uses a weird word. In verse 20 in the ESV, it's it's translated, I did not shrink from declaring. I did not shrink. I didn't shrink back. And in verse 27, again, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That word is only used four times in the New Testament, and two of them are here in this passage. What it means, it carries the thrust of to draw back or shrink back out of fear or regard for another. To say, this is the message I have. There is asbestos everywhere, but I'm worried about offending people. And I saw some bumper stickers, and people are trying to turn me into a joke, and so maybe I'll kind of hold back. In fact, another time that that word is used is in Galatians 2. Remember when when Paul talks about he saw Peter and he was eating at the non-kosher table? Spare ribs, he's got all the food you can want. Unclean, but all things are clean now. He's the one who saw the sheet come out of heaven. And then certain men from James came. And what did Peter do? Certain men came from James. He was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. It wasn't out of principle. He didn't have a change of mind. He saw people who would think ill of him, and he shrunk back. He drew back. And Paul says, I rebuked him openly, for he was clearly in the wrong. Paul's not about to do that with the gospel. It's so easy to do that with the gospel. To say, I'm I'm almost there. We're talking about Jesus, but then, oh, I know that our culture doesn't like to hear this part. I'm going to shrink back. St. Paul had no interest in the praise of men. He only cared that he'd be found worthy on the last day. I'm sure there's someone here who's going to mutter something about this message because it seemed a little harsh. But I don't care. I want to be found worthy on the last day. In fact, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 2, On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. And this often means, this always means, if Jesus' example and the apostles' example mean anything to us, confronting people with their sins and with the prospect of judgment. And perhaps the latter part is what we so easily shrink back from these days. In fact, at the the funeral on Friday, we had a, a gentleman from Bath Baptist Church, Pastor Ryan Great guy. It's been a long time since I've been that impressed with a pastor. And he talked about how he had sat 
with, with Chris and talked about his faith and he had reaffirmed his faith in Jesus and knew he was going uh, to be with the Lord if he, if he didn't make it through this. And then I got up, I gave a gospel message and I talked about how we have life in Jesus and, and, and how he's the way, the truth, and the life and, and no one goes to the Father but by him. But then I, I said, Ryan, get up and give the benediction. And he said, well, let me say a few things first. And I thought, uh-oh, what did I miss? And he said, judgment day is coming. And I thought, I've been to these funerals before. For a moment, it, it's, I shrunk back. And then I realized, no, he has gathered here a lot of people, some of whom are Christians, some of whom haven't heard the gospel, some of whom have put their faith in Jesus, some of them might be on the fence. Why would you not preach the whole gospel? In fact, not to is a crime. And this is where this passage gets really scary to me. In verses 26 and 27. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Obviously this implies that not proclaiming the full gospel means we are guilty of the blood of people who perish apart from it. That, that to me is, is frightening. It goes back, by the way, to Ezekiel. He's getting prophetic on us here. Ezekiel 3, look at verses 17 and 18, or just listen, I'll read them. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. That, to me, is a, a chilling thought. And then if you look at verse, uh, chapter 33, I'm going to read the first nine verses. This is, again, Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to me, says the prophet. Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, If I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes him anyway, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. If the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. It's quite clear what is being taught here. A concept that spans the Old Testament to the New. And in much the same prophetic voice, Paul here calls the Ephesian elders to do the very same thing. And this is the third and final section, the charge to the elders. First and foremost, he tells them, keep watch. And if you're one of the elders here, keep watch. Keep watch, first of all, over yourselves. And that, I think, is often the, a step that is skipped. I think when we see uh, pastors grow in, in great popularity and scope and reach, 
there is a greater temptation, a greater weight on their shoulders where they may say, I got to cut some corners somewhere in my life because it's just so much and not watching after themselves. Skipping time in the scriptures for them to feed their soul and all the time in the scriptures is to feed others. And before long, they are dry and they're trying to feed so many people and bring them water out of a dry well and they themselves then fall. Watch after yourselves. The elders here need to watch after yourselves. All of you need to watch after yourselves. It's not my job, by the way, to make sure that you are reading the scriptures every day. I'm not going to stand over your shoulder and read them with you. But it is my job and the job of each of us as we hold one another accountable to ask, to encourage, and even to rebuke when we must. Secondly, after watching after themselves, they are to watch over the flock which the Holy Spirit has entrusted to you. And you know, here he calls them not elders, but overseers. That's the word that's translated bishop in the King James Bible, and bishops often in in different traditions are uh, kind of pastor over many churches, and and the pastors report to them. It's like a a pyramid kind of structure in in their uh, understanding of church polity. And it's easy to think of those who are overseers, who are higher-ups as being more important, especially if they have special vestments and pointy hats and they're giving orders and this sort of thing. There's a notion of, like, I'm your supervisor, so you do what I say, which is a funny thing to think of somebody saying in full vestments, but that's kind of sometimes the vibe. You will do what I say. It's, It's not the picture painted here, though. Yes, the word episkopos, epi means over, scopos, scope, to look, to oversee, but to, to do it in a pastoral way, to watch over, maybe is a better translation. Those who watch over, like a shepherd. Remember, he said, I served in much humility. And so he expects these elders to do the same. In much humility, to watch over those who've been entrusted to them. Like in Ezekiel, the man on the guard tower, watching over with a thought to protect the flock and to guide them and to serve them. And why watch? Because he warns here that savage wolves are coming soon. And even savage wolves, false teachers, will come up from their own number. Again, echoing Jesus, who said there will come those who are false teachers. They look outwardly like sheep, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. And this too emphasizes the pastoral nature of those who do the overseeing or the watching over. Protecting, guiding, caring. And when we read these these different terms and see them all blended together, we understand why as Baptists we've always had a notion of two offices. There's not a distinction between the elders and the overseers, and even the pastor, there's overlap there. So you say, wait, is everybody who is an elder a pastor? Well, that gets into a whole different discussion, but this is an office. And then there are the deacons who are helping in those kind of mercy and, and physical ministries and things. To, to serve, to oversee, to watch over is what is modeled for us here. And Paul was right about, by the way, coming of false teachers. In 1 Timothy, we read about the false teachers coming, the, the savage wolves, and some of them from their own number, as we see in 2 Timothy. Remember, we read about Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have wandered away from the truth and destroyed the faith of some. Their teaching will spread like gangrene, he warns through his protege, Timothy. These savage wolves would come in and twist the truth, just like the serpent did in the beginning. Today, there are so many people who just mock and reject the truth of the scriptures, 
but the apostle was far more concerned with the idea of the truth being affirmed, but then twisted and changed, distorted, or perhaps that those who preach it would shrink back and dilute it. He says, I did not shrink back, but proclaimed the whole counsel. See, there's overt twisting of God's word. That's very obvious to those of us who are grounded in the faith. But then there's also, which is just as dangerous, the overemphasizing of one aspect while shrinking back from another. And that can happen even unintentionally. It's been a while since I've quoted my favorite Methodist, so let me quote him for you this morning. William Willimon said this, Jesus doesn't meet our needs. He rearranges them. He cares very little about most things that I assume are my needs, and he gives me needs I would have never had if I hadn't met Jesus. He reorders them. Our mission as the church, if we read Paul's words and his charge to the leaders from Ephesus, is not to go out and just meet all the felt needs, but rather through the preaching of the gospel to reorder those needs. Now, of course, there are, there are the, the primal needs, in which we feed those who are hungry, we clothe those who are naked, we do these things in obedience to Jesus, and we do them as a way to adorn the gospel of grace. But when we say, oh, the, the church needs to be all about meeting needs in the community, we miss the point of what Paul is doing here, what the church should be doing here. And finally, here are the closing remarks. Ah, absolute just novice preaching. You can't say finally twice or people don't believe you. I did it. Though. The closing remarks, he says, listen, I did, not, I did not covet anyone's silver or gold or clothing. Those things were symbols of status in the ancient world. Paul couldn't care less about them. They were nothing to him. The love of money, it's not only the root of all kinds of evil, but it is a sure sign of a false teacher. Look closer. Is, the, is a teacher of the gospel trying to use the office to enrich himself? If so, that is a false teacher. Now, there are many who do it kind of sneakily. Today, people don't even try to hide it. Instead, they say, I'm buying another jet and twist the scriptures to make it look like the scriptures promote the love of money. Paul did not fall into that trap. For Paul, part of watching over himself was to avoid getting rich from his position. It would have been so easy if he would have cracked the door a little bit, he could, have, he could have been overwhelmed with gifts and wealth and all sorts of things. Instead, he says, I worked with these hands while I was amongst you. He was aware of the dangers. The danger that he might focus on himself instead of on Christ. The danger that he might tarnish his witness before unbelievers. And the fact that even though he was owed a living in the gospel, he says that several times, the workman is worth his wages, he understood that as the apostle to the Gentiles, there was this notion of a patron-client relationship. It was already there. And if he took money from people, there would be the expectation that his message would be informed by what they wanted him to say. And he was not willing to enter into that kind of arrangement. I think, though, if we want to get to the core of this and we want to walk away with something, something tangible in our hands, something to chew on throughout this week, we would go back to verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value, not as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul here is determining whether his life is of value or not. And how does he determine whether it's been a success? Does he ask, what have I gotten out of it? 
money, notoriety, fun, pleasure, gratification, wealth. No, Paul, who for 2,000 years has been one of the most famous humans to have ever lived, considers his life nothing unless he was fulfilling the mission that God gave him. That's why he could be content in all situations, whether surrounded by these friends that he had been making and getting close to for for three years, or whether telling them, I will never see you again. And what a sad way for this passage to end. They all hug and they all pray together. And according to the text, they kept on kissing him. It was a different time. <laughs> and people greeted each other with a, with a kiss in this culture. And they were, they were not hiding their sorrow over this uh, departure. But let me leave you with some good news. You see, this was not a message from God. He doesn't say God revealed this to me. No, he was just assuming, based on what little God had revealed, that he would never see them again. And then they wept, and they, and they spilled all these tears, but guess what? He did see them again. 1 Timothy 1 indicates that Paul did go back to Ephesus again. So often we too see where we think the road is going and we mourn what we assume is going to happen instead of keeping the door open to what God might accomplish. And knowing this, perhaps we see this ending more as, as something happy and encouraging. You see, we, we read so much about Paul's enemies, but just don't miss his friends in the text. Sometimes they're named, like last week, that whole long, difficult list that Steve had to read. Or more often, like here, they're not. That these are still people that worked together with Paul. They wept together. They prayed together. They built each other up. They celebrated together. This is the church of Jesus Christ. And together with them, Paul is able to face any kind of trials. And as he faces tribulation and rejection, even persecution or ultimately martyrdom, it did not distract St. Paul from finishing the race laid out before him. Let me ask you, what is the race laid out before you? What might stop you and trip you up? How can you take the next step in being faithful to your Savior? In June 2017, a 33-year-old rock climber named Alex Honnold scaled El Capitón, which is a 3,000-foot granite rock in Yosemite which is a 3,000-foot granite vertical rock in Yosemite National Park, widely considered the most challenging wall to climb in the world. And Alex was the first person to make the climb free solo, meaning with no equipment, no ropes, and at one point he was hanging from just his thumbs a 1,000 feet above the ground. Now, Alex lives most of the year out of a van, a lifestyle he describes as quote, dirtbagging, and which he calls an intentional choice to prioritize my vocation. And when asked about this by reporters, he said, I want to climb the best places in the world, and that's my focus. So I'm willing to give up having stability, having a shower, having whatever in order to climb the way that I want. I am probably more intentional with the way I live my life than virtually anybody. I've made clear choices about what I find value in, what risks I am willing to take. I am doing exactly what I love to do. It's very easy for someone sitting on the couch at home to condemn it as crazy and stupid, but I can justify all my choices. Can you say the same about your life?
And I think St. Paul here calls us to ask that same question. Now, he didn't live in a van down by the river, but he did often live in ships and out of bags and on the road and in in difficult situations and in prison cells. And, And it might sound like life had kicked him all around, but he would tell us this has been an intentional choice in order to live by what he finds value in and what risks he's willing to take. He would tell us, I think, too, I'm doing exactly what I love to do. No, he didn't love every moment of it. There was difficult times, but it was worth it because he found value ultimately in his Savior, Jesus Christ. As you look at the course laid out before you, whether you're nearing the end or whether you are midway through, I guess we don't really know, but consider this. Are you living intentionally? Are you making clear choices based on what you find value in, your values based in Scripture, based on what risks we're called to take to lay it all down for the cross? From the outside, it's easy for the world to look at us and say, that's crazy, that's stupid. But when we know what we know about who Jesus is and what he has called us to become, it's not crazy at all. Let us live our lives today so that when it is time to say farewell, like Paul, we can look back and say, yeah, I haven't been perfect, but I've been faithful.